I'm your host, Elise, and this is Old Blood. What does it mean to be furious? I think we would all say that it's much more powerful of an emotion than anger, or just being mad. Fury denotes an emotion with no restraint, a passion so encompassing that nothing could change its trajectory. It's not an emotion we feel very often, and if you do, you should probably go talk to a therapist, but it is one common to all of mankind. We have all felt fury at one point or another. We have all been so consumed with anger that we have acted or spoken in ways that we otherwise would not have. In this way, fury is almost transformative. It makes us into worse, more unkind versions of ourselves. Fury is perhaps more connected to the animal within ourselves than most other emotions. The id of our personalities, the urge within us to take, to survive, to act wholly on our impulses. It implies a lack of intellect and a reliance on our animalistic urges. Fury is primal, and its origins, at least as we know it in the English language, go back to ancient Greece and then from there to the beginning of time. To the Greeks, the beginning of time was chaos, literally. They defined chaos as a state of nothingness, and out of this nothingness came the Earth. Our conception of our planet as Mother Earth comes from the Greeks Gaia, who gave birth to the sky, named Uranus, whom she later married. Gaia and Uranus gave birth to the twelve titans who were later supplanted by the Olympians, led by the Greek gods whom you are probably more familiar with, which include Zeus and Hera, for a few. Gaia and Uranus were the Adam and Eve of Greek mythology, the ones from whom all other beings descended. But just because you are the first father the world has ever seen, it does not mean you are a good father. Uranus feared his children, and once they were born, he returned them back into their mother's womb, hidden deep within Mother Earth, for he was so afraid that otherwise one of his children would grow strong, kill him, and then take his place. As you can imagine, this situation was quite uncomfortable for Gaia, who had all of her children placed back inside her, and she wished, if not for the sake of her comfort, then for the sake of her children's freedom, 
that her children would help free them all from Uranus's tyranny. Gaia crafted a sickle of ancient diamonds and gifted it to her eldest child, Kronos, who was the only one of them brave enough to carry out the deed. Gaia hid Kronos inside the outer part of her womb, knowing that it was only a matter of time before Uranus came to penetrate her. And when he did, Kronos used the sickle to castrate his father, spilling his blood onto the earth, which sprouted into the Erinyes, the goddesses of vengeance and retribution. The Romans adopted the Greek gods and gave them their own names, including the Erinyes, whom they renamed as the Furies. Over time, all other monsters were driven from the earth, yet the Erinyes remained. The famous mythologist Edith Hamilton said, quote, As long as there was sin in the world, they could not be banished. End quote. The Erinyes remained to curse all those who committed crimes against nature oath breaking, acts against the gods, and murder particularly the murder of a parent. The Furies were ugly, winged creatures, donning black mourning clothes with hair of serpents and weeping tears of blood. They served in the underworld, as on earth, conducting the torture of criminals below as they cursed the sinners above by leading them into tormenting madness, illness, and disease. Once cursed by the Furies, the only way to soothe their wrath was through atonement. Perhaps the most famous tale of the Furies' vengeance is Oedipus Rex, the king who unwittingly murdered his father and married his mother. The Aranyes drove him mad enough to blind himself with the pins from the dress of his dead wife and mother. Oedipus wandered the earth and, finally paying his penance, arrived at Colonus, a village sacred to the Furies, where he finally lived and then died in peace. Yet the Furies were not always thought of as bad, for they were summoned by the good to help them obtain the justice they could not on their own. They were inexorable, Hamilton said. Relentless and inescapable, but they were just. But born from the blood of their father, they reserve a special kind of fury for anyone who dares to commit the same heinous act of murdering one's own father. Mary Blandy was the spoiled, only child of Mr. and Mrs. Francis Blandy. The Blandys were not members of the English aristocracy of the 1740s, but they were wealthy and respected by their town of Henley-on-Thames, which is a little more than an hour's car ride from London today. Francis Blandy's work as an attorney brought the family plenty of money 
much of which went into providing for Mary and making sure she had what she needed to live a happy and comfortable life. Mary was not particularly attractive, since a childhood smallpox infection left her face scarred, but she did have dark, soulful eyes and a full head of hair. What truly made her attractive, though, was her personality. She was intelligent, articulate, and charismatic. And unlike most women of her time, Mary was literate and loved to read, having been educated at home by her mother. This intelligence, coupled with her charismatic personality, attracted quite a few men, despite any physical shortcomings. The Blandies were social climbers and longed to climb the rungs of 18th century English society. Their best chance of doing so was in marrying Mary into a more prestigious family than theirs. To accomplish this, Francis not so quietly announced that whoever married his daughter would eventually inherit the sum of £10,000. To put that into perspective, The equivalent of £10,000 in 1740 is nearly £2 million today. After announcing Mary's inheritance, the Blandies set off for the city of Bath, which was named for the baths built there by the ancient Romans. Bath had recently become popular after architects erected elaborate structures surrounding the spas in the first half of the 18th century. Many flocked to Bath for their supposed health-giving and restorative powers, but it was also known as a sort of marriage marketplace. Mary's presentation at Bath that season was an unqualified success. Her admirers reported that she was witty and spirited, and it was even rumored that she shared a dance with the Prince of Wales. This soothed the Blandies, who had been stressed out that Mary was still unmarried and in her mid-twenties. In other words, Mary was a spinster. So it was extra exciting when several suitors approached Mr. Blandy, asking for Mary's hand in marriage. And while Mary may have been willing to marry any of these men, her dad wanted to hold out for a husband who had raised their family name. He rejected an apothecary for being too poor and too low on the totem pole. He rejected a soldier next, followed by several others, all of whom Mr. Blandy denied for being too poor and too unimportant. And with each rejection, Mary became a little more anxious. Luckily, a new man appealed to her father, and this one held the title of captain. Mary was over the moon happy about the match, and relieved that her worries of staying a spinster had come to an end. Yet just as it seemed like her luck was about to turn, the captain was abruptly called back to duty. Mary was crushed, but agreed to wait for his return to get married. In the summer of 1746, Mary and her parents attended a dinner party where she was introduced to a Captain William Henry Cranston. Like Mary, he was not considered attractive because he too had a pock-ridden face 
and was often clumsy and not as well-mannered as society hoped a captain would be. And despite later descriptions of him being a, quote, serpent, end quote, there is no doubt that he actually was quite charismatic. The 32-year-old was often called a man of pleasure for all the romances he had with women and found it quite easy to charm them into liking him. He was also infatuated with living a life of leisure. He did not, however, have the money to sustain this type of lifestyle. You see, Cranston was the fifth son of Lord Cranston, which made him nobility, but it also meant that four of his brothers had to die before Cranston had a chance to inherit any substantial portion of his family's money. He was in debt, and despite becoming captain and recently returning from a victorious battle, he still received pretty low pay. If you were a part of the nobility, you were unlikely to seriously consider Cranston as a match for your daughter. But for a family like the Blandys, who had the money, but none of the titles, Cranston looked like a ticket to the upper echelons. Despite the impression Cranston left on Mary at this dinner party, she was still engaged, and so they left the party and put him out of their minds until several months later when Mary's fiancé returned from service, evidently no longer interested in continuing their engagement. Mary and Cranston met again in 1747 when he began courting her. Mary's mother instantly took a liking to the captain, who seemingly always knew the right words to say to a lady. Her father liked Cranston too, if not for himself, then for the social standing he would bring to their family. With both parents' approval, Mary and Cranston began discussing their future together. But just as the fairy tale had begun, so too had the nightmare. Cranston approached Mary one day, telling her that there was something she had to know, and he wanted her to hear it from him first. Cranston confessed that there was a woman in Scotland who was claiming to be his wife. He denied that this was true, though, and convinced her that he was head over heels in love with Mary, and only Mary. He begged her not to end the relationship and allow him to prove the invalidity of the woman's claim. Mary's mother still adored Cranston, and although her father developed a nagging feeling in the back of his head that warned him that not all was right with Captain Cranston, he agreed to allow their engagement to continue anyway. After the couple announced their engagement, the Blandys received a surprising letter from Cranston's granduncle, the Lord Mark Kerr. Kerr informed them that Cranston was very much already a married man with a child back in Scotland. Apparently, both Cranston and his wife's families agreed to keep the marriage a secret. Although Cranston was himself a Scot, 
He fought against the Highlanders when they supported Prince Charlie's rebellion against the crown in the Jacobite uprising of 1745. His wife and her family were not just Catholics in a Protestant England, they were also Jacobites and seen as traitors of the crown. If word got out that Cranston was married to a Catholic Jacobite, his chances of rising within the military's ranks would be over. Although their child's baptism was attended and recognized by both families, Cranston's wife, Anne, agreed to stay quiet about their marriage and child for the sake of his career. In Mary Blandy, Cranston saw an opportunity to erase his mistake and start over with a family whose loyalties weren't in question. And 10,000 pounds richer at that. Cranston begged Mary on his knees. Yes, he did promise to marry Anne, but only if she agreed to become a Presbyterian as he was, and since she did not, it invalidated the engagement. And yes, he had admitted his marriage to others previously, but only because he could not bring himself to harm Anne's reputation. This all made complete sense to Mary and her mother, but her father's nagging feeling had grown and now wrestled with the parts of him that wanted to see his daughter happy and in love, and wanted a title of nobility for her. And then there was the fact that, without this marriage, Mary would be a 30-year-old spinster. Mr. Blandy reluctantly agreed to allow the engagement to continue, with the stipulation that Cranston legally prove that he was neither married nor entangled in a binding engagement. Yet by 1748, the courts declared Anne Murray as Cranston's lawful wife and charged him with paying her an annuity of 50 pounds sterling, along with another 100 pounds in expenses. Then it became public knowledge that he convinced Anne to sign a letter testifying that they were not married, as he made her believe that his success in the military depended upon his appearing single. Fortunately, Anne was wise enough to save the letter in which Cranston asked her to do this. Upon hearing this news, Mr. Blandy asked Cranston to leave their home and end his engagement with Mary, who was devastated by her father's decision and still trusting Cranston's word as the truth. While Cranston was gone from the house, Mary's mother had begun to feel ill with pains in her breast so she took Mary with her to London to seek medical attention. While there, Cranston snuck in to visit the two, proposing a secret marriage. Cranston told Mary that if they married through the Church of England, its authority would supersede any claim of a marriage by cohabitation. For those of you who don't know, a marriage of cohabitation is also known as a common-law marriage, and back then basically meant that couples who lived together were seen as married, even if they did not have a marriage ceremony. Since Cranston insisted that he was never married by a priest, then his supposed marriage to Anne must have been a marriage by cohabitation. His reasoning, then, was that a marriage to Mary, conducted and sanctified by the Church of England, must hold more authority than a marriage that was never officiated by the church. Or so he said. 
Mary at first hesitated about this secret marriage plan, wanting proof that it would succeed before moving forward. But Cranston claimed that she eventually gave in, and that the two were secretly married at her request. But this is not something that Mary confirmed. By the fall of 1749, Mrs. Blandy was on her deathbed. With her last breath, she asked her husband not to oppose Mary's relationship with Cranston. She spoke to her husband for the last time, saying, quote, Mary has her heart set upon Cranston. When I am gone, let no one set you against the match. End quote. His wife's death devastated Mr. Blandy, but he took her last words to heart and allowed Cranston back into their home, again under the stipulation that he set the record straight legally before he and Mary live as man and wife. But despite how badly Mr. Blandy wanted to fulfill his wife's dying wish, he could not help the utter hatred he developed for Cranston. He was torn between his love for his wife, his desire to see his daughter happy, and his complete distrust for a man who has proved himself a fraud and a liar time and time again. Tensions rose in the Blandy home as Mr. Blandy tried his best to tolerate Cranston. Yet his distaste for him kept rearing its head to the point where Mary claimed she left the dinner table every night in tears after her father had made some rude remark to her or Cranston. Cranston soothed Mary, telling her that everything would be all right, everything would work out just fine. Besides, he had a plan. He happened to know of a Scottish love powder, and that if they fed it to Mr. Blandy, it would warm his heart and solve all of their problems. Mary told Cranston she would absolutely not put anything in her father's tea. And in her own words, Mary asked him, quote, Are you weak enough to think there is such a power in any powders? End quote. Cranston told Mary that he had felt the same way as her, but that he himself had taken the love powder years ago and was shocked when he found his heart softened towards a friend he had sworn he would never speak to again and was suddenly convinced to forgive him. He suffered no ill effects from the powder and would never dream of doing anything to harm her father anyway, much as he loved Mary and knew she would suffer if her father was hurt. Mary remained unconvinced and told him no. In the year that followed, Cranston's military career had him coming and going to the Blandy home. Each visit was a repeat of more of the same tension and arguing. Her father grew disillusioned each time Cranston returned with unfulfilled promises and the reassurance that the courts had almost made a decision regarding the marriage in their favor. Even Mr. Blandy could not take the stress that had swallowed his home, and often left the house just to get away from it all. One morning, as Mary and Cranston gathered for breakfast and discussed Mr. Blandy's bad temper as they waited for him to come downstairs, he told her again of his idea to give her father the love powder. Mary replied, saying, quote, I am glad you have not, for I have no faith in such things. End quote. 
but I have, Cranston said to her, and admitted that he had already added the powder to his tea. Upset, Mary rose from the table to replace her father's cup of tea with a fresh one, but her father entered before she was able to. The couple kept a close eye on him for the remainder of the day, and were pleasantly surprised to find him in such a pleasant mood that evening, and even chatted with Cranston well into the night. Just when things finally seemed to be getting better for Mary, Cranston approached her, telling her that they needed to talk. I'm sure that any of you who have ever been in a relationship and had that person tell you, we need to talk, can sympathize with the panic that instantly filled Mary once he said this. Cranston told her that before the two of them became involved, he had impregnated another woman. Mary was devastated, understandably, but unwilling to end the relationship and told him that he better not repeat his mistake. To this, a relieved Cranston agreed that he would never dream of doing so. As time passed, things settled back into place. Mary found herself daydreaming as she flitted about the house completing her chores. She entered Cranston's room to clean up a bit and freshen his clothes, just as she dreamed she would when she became the proper Mrs. Cranston. Then Mary came across some recently dated letters in his unlocked trunk from a woman who was obviously romantically involved with him. She confronted Cranston when he arrived and ended their relationship. He, quote, wept and raved, end quote, and fell to his knees, quote, clinging to the skirts of her gown, end quote, and begging her forgiveness. He said he would kill himself if she left him, which still did not change her mind. Cranston pulled one last card from his sleeve and reminded her of her mother's dying wish that they be together. Mary relented. In addition to all of the stress Mary's relationship brought Mr. Blandy, his health had also begun to decline. His decaying teeth, heartburn, kidney stones, and gout certainly did not help improve his spirits, and his short temper returned. There were several times where it seemed like Mr. Blandy began to recover and feel better, but they inevitably resulted in him falling more ill than the previous time. His stomach pains grew excruciating, and he began vomiting not long after having a meal. Several other members of the household began to feel ill as well. One of the servants, by the name of Gunnell, fell violently ill for over a week after drinking from Mr. Blandy's tea, as did another servant, Mrs. Emmett, who finished Mr. Blandy's tea, which he left untouched because he said it tasted strange. Mrs. Emmett became so sick that everyone was afraid she would die. Upon hearing how ill she was, Mary sent her some broth and various goods for her health. Mr. Blandy's vomiting and diarrhea worsened one day after eating some gruel, which is a sort of thinned-out oatmeal, so Mary called an apothecary to come examine him. The apothecary said that her father likely ate something that disagreed with his stomach and prescribed rest and patience. 
The next day, Mr. Blandy began feeling better and had some of the gruel reheated for his dinner. Again, he fell violently ill. The next night, the still-recovering Mrs. Emmett helped herself to some leftover gruel, and she too developed severe stomach pains and vomiting, and was so sick and weak that she was still recovering nearly half a year later. The following day, Mary again ordered her servants to heat up the last of the gruel, clearly oblivious to the connection between the dish and the mysterious illnesses. The servants eventually recovered, but Mr. Blandy worsened. He lost and regained consciousness repeatedly until finally succumbing to an agonizing and ugly death on August 14, 1751. By this point, nearly everyone in the Blandy home realized that poor Mr. Blandy, the ever-doting father, had been poisoned to the point of death. Everyone, that is, except for his daughter, Mary. Because, you see, there was one problem. The likely suspect for the poisoner, Cranston, had left the Blandy home before anyone began to fall ill. Mr. Blandy had long since ordered Cranston from his home in a fit of anger after hearing more of the scandals Cranston was involved in. In fact, once Cranston left the home, he never again returned. Before Mr. Blandy died, the servants began to talk among themselves after so many people within the Blandy household fell ill after eating the gruel. Upon hearing that one servant remembered seeing Mary stirring the gruel on the first night it was made, Gunnell and Binfield ran to the kitchen to observe the gruel and found a, quote, white gritty settlement at the bottom. Being so late at night, the two locked the gruel in the pantry. In the morning, Gunnell and Binfield sent the gruel to a neighbor in order to have an apothecary come and examine it. Afraid for Mr. Blandy, who was still sick in bed, Gunnell told him that she and the others feared he was being poisoned by his own daughter. Because, since being kicked out, Cranston had kept in touch with Mary through mail. Hearing her frustrations about her father, he let her know that he was able to get his hands on some more of that Scottish love powder. He shipped her the powder with instructions for her to add it to her father's tea. Mary was disheartened to find the tea not working this time around, with her father still in a bad mood, so Mary wrote to Cranston telling him that she was having trouble getting her father to drink the tea. He replied that she should instead add some to his gruel, or any of his foods that would not leave the powder visible at the top. Mr. Blandy spent the last days of his life in physical agony from the poisoning, and emotional from the knowledge that it was his own daughter who poisoned him. The servant Gunnell suggested that he call for the confiscation of his daughter's letters 
to find proof of any conspiracy between her and Cranston. Mr. Blandy refused to take Mary's letters, as he had always respected her privacy and was not about to stop, but he told Gunnell that she was permitted to confiscate any white powders or suspicious materials she found in Mary's room. The next morning, when Mr. Blandy was feeling strong enough to get out of bed, he went downstairs to have breakfast with his daughter, who began serving him some tea. He took a sip, looked at Mary, and asked her if she put anything in it, for it tasted strange. Mary replied, saying no, but became flustered and left the room soon after. He disposed of the tea and found his daughter. He told her, in view of several witnesses, that when he was younger, he and two friends were poisoned once in a coffee house, and that one friend died almost immediately, followed by the other not long after. He looked Mary in the eyes and said, quote, I have survived both, and it is my fortune to be poisoned at last. End quote. Shocked, Mary fled to her room, gathered the love powders and Cranston's letters, and threw them into a fire in the kitchen. The maids waited until Mary left and rushed to the fire in time to pluck out small bits of the letters and a tiny portion of white powder. When her father's health worsened, Mary acted the concerned daughter and called for Dr. Addington. Upon seeing Mr. Blandy, the doctor immediately declared that he was suffering from the effects of poison. Meanwhile, the panicking Mary picked up a pen to warn her lover. She wrote, Dear Willie, my father is so bad that I only have time to tell you that if you do not hear from me soon again, don't be frightened. I am better myself. Lest any accident should happen to your letters, take care what you write. My sincere compliments. I am ever yours. The letter was, of course, quickly confiscated and given to Mr. Blandy. Upon reading it, the still-loving father sighed and said, quote, My poor lovesick girl, what won't a girl do for a man she loves? End quote. When Mr. Blandy's brother arrived, he barred Mary from entering his brother's room, afraid for his safety. Mary claimed to have sat outside her father's door, weeping and petrified and begging to be allowed near him. Finally, her father sent out a letter to Mary, telling her that he would forgive her if only she would agree to help bring Cranston to justice. When she was finally admitted inside to see him, he informed Mary that there was no longer any need to lie, because they already had proof of her sins her letters, and the poison. Mary fell to the floor and began begging her father's forgiveness, telling him she would never again see or speak to Cranston. He spoke gently and said, quote, I forgive thee, my dear, and I hope God will forgive thee, but thou shouldst have considered better than to have attempted anything against thy father. End quote. Mary wept and admitted that she had given him the poison, but said that she thought it was a harmless love powder and had no idea that it would hurt him. He cursed Cranston for tricking his daughter, thus relieving her of the blame, though we will never know what he truly believed about his daughter's guilt. 
Mary replied that his tenderness was almost too much to bear. Quote, like a sword piercing my heart, she told him. Much worse than if you were ever so angry. I must down on my knees and beg you will not curse me. End quote. He replied that he would never curse her and told her, quote, Nay, I bless thee, and I hope God will bless thee also and amend thy life. End quote. Still, the talented attorney, and now afraid for his daughter's fate, Mr. Blandy told her, quote, Do, my dear, go out of my room and say no more, lest thou should say anything to thine own prejudice. End quote. Mary left the room, seeing her father for the last time. Meanwhile, Dr. Addington had the powder tested, creating the first scientific evidence to be shown in a court of law. He tried testing the powder rescued from the fire, but there was too little of it to be of use, so he instead used the gritty film found at the bottom of the pan of gruel. The doctor's test concluded that the powder was none other than white arsenic. Taking this news to Mr. Blandy, Dr. Addington asked if he knew who would poison him. A poor lovesick girl, he told the doctor. I forgive her. Mary was confined to her chamber and deprived of anything she might use to hurt herself. They interrogated her more, and again she claimed she was innocent. She repeated that she did give her father a powder, but had no idea it was poison. After Mr. Blandy died, the household staff claimed that Mary tried to bribe them into helping her escape and go to France. Others said Mary exhibited an, quote, extreme anxiety about her situation, but no sadness or remorse for her father's death, end quote. Then, when the man in charge of guarding Mary's door left his post to help bury Mr. Blandy, she escaped and fled to the Henley Bridge in what was interpreted as an attempt to commit suicide. The townspeople, already aware of what had happened, recognized Mary. The angry crowd detained her until she was rescued by a nearby innkeeper, who kept her safe until she was re-arrested. After the mob thwarted Mary's escape attempt, the court convened a hearing to discuss the evidence and determine whether she should be officially arrested and tried for murder. Witnesses testified at the trial, including the Blandy household maids, and Dr. Addington presented the autopsy results declaring that Blandy had died of the results of arsenic poisoning. The proceedings concluded, and jailers promptly took Mary into custody for allegedly murdering her father. They transported her to the Oxford Castle prison, where she was to await her trial. I like to think of murder as a photographer. With each murder, a photograph taken of that society's values. Everything from who is murdered to who is committing the murder, to the extent a murder is publicized, to what repercussions these criminals face, reveal exactly what and who that society thinks is important, and what and who are not. The mere fact that Great Britain's legal system at this time was nicknamed the Bloody Code, 
for its enthusiasm for punishing even the most trivial of crimes with execution, shows us the low value they placed on human life up until nearly the 19th century. Destroying turnpike roads and fish ponds, stealing rabbits, or even walking around at night with your face blackened or otherwise concealed, are just several of the over 200 offenses that could land someone the death penalty. Life was just not valuable, and I don't mean only in Great Britain, but throughout the world and throughout history, really, up until the past century or so. The murder of Mr. Blandy is an ugly photograph of 18th century Great Britain. And in this trial, the photograph we see is rife with a low value placed on human life, class discrimination, and sexism. Now, when I say sexism, I don't mean to say that Mary should have been found innocent of murder. I think she was guilty and deserved to be held accountable for her actions, and I'll explain to you why I think that shortly. But by sexism, I mean that Mary had severely limited options in what she was to do with her life. In her day, women were property, either of their husbands or her male relatives. And as property, nearly every major decision was made for her. Through no fault of her own, Mary was, at 32, unmarried and labeled a spinster. In her actual trial, she is introduced to the court and, for the record, as Mary Blandy, spinster. And yet, one can only imagine how much worse this murder trial would have been had Mary not been a woman. By virtue of her womanhood, and of course a white upper-class womanhood, Mary was allowed preferential treatment that few others arrested for murder would have received. Hyson is a type of Chinese green tea that was very popular in Mary's day, so much so that it was seen as the ultimate symbol of rebellion when American colonists dumped a ton of it into the Boston Harbor 20 years later in what we know as the Boston Tea Party. And like other fashionable upper-class British women of her day, Mary Blandy was quite attached to tea, particularly Hyson. So when placed in Oxford Castle's jail cell, the murderess was accompanied by a maid and a tea caddy with canisters full of Hyson. And cell is probably not the right word for her prison either, as the apartment was quite comfortably furnished. She enjoyed her twice-daily tea times, games, walks about the castle's gardens, and the attention of visitors who came only at her permission. It was also unusual that the jailers allowed Mary to go unfettered, so long as she maintained her good behavior. Needless to say, none of these privileges would have been enjoyed by anyone other than someone of her social standing. Yet, shortly after her imprisonment, Mary's luck took a bad turn. Despite Mary inheriting all of her father's property after his will was read, she was shocked to learn that she received only a fraction of what she believed she was owed. Of the £10,000 promised... Mary received only 4,000. Her father, 
desperate to secure the best match for his daughter as possible, lied to everyone about how much she was worth. A lie that likely became the motive for his death. As I told you earlier, the Blandy trial was unique in that it was the first time in which a doctor used scientific evidence to prove a murder in court when Dr. Addington conducted a test on the powder to prove that it was, in fact, white arsenic. The Crown used several other medical professionals in their prosecution in addition to Dr. Addington, the man who originally tended to Mr. Blandy. Though Addington was not famous by the time of the trial, he would be soon. Propelled by the fame that followed his part in the Blandy trial, Addington went on to study insanity and its treatments. He eventually became so well-known for his work that he was called to treat King George III's mental illness. Dr. Addington's testimony was the first put forward by the prosecution. He explained how he found Mr. Blandy when he arrived, and detailed all the horrific symptoms of poison the poor father had experienced. Bloody feces, quote, prickings and heats in his throat, mouth, and tongue, which were also inflamed and swollen, bloodshot eyes, angry pustules throughout his nostrils and mouth, yellowing skin and inability to swallow, difficulty breathing and irregular heartbeats, not to mention the purging and excruciating stomach pains he suffered. He then explained his autopsy findings, mentioning that Mr. Blandy's heart was covered in purple spots, his spleen discolored, his liver discolored and looking as though it were boiled, his kidneys yellow-spotted, and his bile at times red. Mr. Blandy also had an inflamed stomach and intestines which were full of a, quote, slimy, bloody froth, end quote. He told the court that he, quote, never beheld a body in which the viscera were so universally inflamed and mortified, end quote. Another doctor testified next, agreeing with Addington's description of the autopsy. Then, several maids swore to seeing Mary stirring the gruel, the gritty white powder they found inside it, and the soured relationship between Mary and her father. The maids recounted how Mary's relationship with her father disintegrated because of Cranston, and recalled Mary saying nasty things about him. One maid remembered Mary calling her dad an old villain, and saying she wished he was dead. But for many, Mary's odd behavior during the trial cemented her guilt in their minds. Quite a few onlookers mentioned Mary being emotionless throughout, even through gruesome descriptions of her father's autopsy. Onlookers described her behavior as, quote, manly, noting that it was unnatural for a woman mourning the loss of her father to remain dry-eyed. In Mary's defense, the crowd of men witnessing the trial expected women in general to be overly emotional, and when she did not play the part of how her society expected women to behave, they jumped to the conclusion that the, quote, unnatural behavior was evidence of her guilt. Really, though, Mary's behavior could be explained by a number of different excuses. She might have been in shock, or that freezing up was her natural reaction to a tragedy. Of course, it could also mean the obvious, that Mary simply lacked compassion, but I would rather judge her guilt based upon facts. 
When it came time for the defense to call their witnesses to testify, they really did not have much to say. Several testified that they had known the family for a long time and never heard Mary speak ill of her father, unlike what the prosecution's witnesses recalled. Some restated Mary's claim that she thought she was giving her father an innocent love powder, especially since the first time Cranston added the powder into Mr. Blandy's tea, he was in perfectly good health afterward. Unlike in the modern-day court cases we are used to, where the accused lawyers almost always recommend that they not testify so as to not incriminate themselves, it was common in Mary's day for the accused to present their own defense. And Mary's own testimony, in my opinion, was the most damaging to her case of all. When she finally took the stand, Mary spoke endlessly about the different ways in which she was misrepresented and lied about. She spoke on and on about the misfortunes that fell upon her, and of everything that was taken away from her. Mary played the victim well, speaking only of herself and without a word of regret for what she had done, whether intentional or not. She was so intent on victimizing herself that she forgot to display sadness for the pain and loss of her father, whom she claimed to love. In response to Mary's testimony and claim of innocence, the prosecution raised several questions which the defense was never able to answer. How could Mary still believe the love powder was harmless after her household fell sick numerous times after she administered it, and particularly when she admitted herself that she was skeptical of it? And if she believed it was an innocent love powder, and that she had nothing to hide, why would she attempt to destroy the evidence? Moreover, if Mary only realized the powder was actually poison after giving it to him, and him falling ill, why would she not tell the doctor the truth, so that he could potentially do more to save the father that she claimed to love? The prosecution concluded by charging the jury to find Mary guilty because, quote, facts don't lie, end quote. The jury consulted for a whopping total of five minutes before returning with a verdict, guilty. They then turned to Mary and read her sentence. Quote, you are to be carried to the place of execution and there hanged by the neck until you are dead, and may God, of his infinite mercy, receive your soul. End quote. She remained unemotional and appealed to the judge for more time before her execution to, quote, make my peace with God. In the six entire weeks the judge allowed her, Mary spent her time writing letters, as well as penning her account of the entire affair, which was certified by witnesses, and then published. The night before she was sentenced to die, Mary received the Holy Sacrament, and ate a last dinner of mutton chops and apple pie. In the morning, as a large crowd gathered to see her die, Mary dressed herself in a black dress and black stockings, just in case she soiled herself upon death. She then gathered two guineas with which to pay the executioner, which was common for the condemned to do to sort of bribe their way into as easy and painless of a death as possible. Finally, at 9 in the morning on March 6th of 1752, 
the jailers led Mary out of Oxford Castle and to her death. She climbed the set of stairs leading to her noose and listened as prayers were read. She then spoke to the crowd, once more declaring her innocence, and begged the crowd's prayers. Concerned that men would look up her skirts after she was hanged, she turned to her executioners and pleaded, quote, Gentlemen, do not hang me high for the sake of decency. End quote. She turned to the noose, trembling only slightly, and said, quote, I am afraid I shall fall, end quote, referring to the precariousness of the platform. After they placed the halter around her neck, Mary pulled a black handkerchief over her face, gave some prayers, and signaled the executioner by holding out the little book in her hands. Mary Blandy's corpse swung in the air for half an hour before the sheriff cut her down. No hearse or coffin arrived to carry her, so he flung her over his shoulders and carried her through the crowd to his house. Witnesses cringed at the indecent manner with which her body was handled, saying that it was, quote, in the most beastly manner, with her legs exposed very indecently for several hundred yards, end quote. Her body sat in the sheriff's home until five in the evening, when it was finally put on a hearse and taken to Henley. Mary was interred in the Henley Parish Church, per her request. Mary would never know it, but she actually was lucky. Later, in 1752, the king passed the Murder Act, which harshened the conditions of those convicted of murder in an attempt to discourage what he believed was an upsetting increase in the number of homicides. The 1752 Act decreed that the condemned be executed within two days of their sentence, fed only bread and water while in custody, and that their bodies would never be buried and instead be donated to science for surgeons to practice their dissections on. Some even argued that it was Mary's case that made the Murder Act necessary, though that is debatable. The Blandy case was infamous in its day, partly because it involved a young murderess, but also because of the centuries-old belief of how unnatural it is for one to murder their own parent. Thus, initial reactions to the case are overwhelmingly hostile toward Mary. Much of what was written about her were just repeats of the prosecution's closing arguments, in which they deemed Mary as unnatural and an abomination. The crime in which the prisoner stands charged, the prosecution said to the court, is, quote, of the most heinous nature and blackest dye, being not only murder, but parricide, the murder of her own father, end quote. Over time, others turned their attention to the Blandy trial, seeking to portray her more benevolently. In fact, she was written of as recently as 2016 in an article by Amy Watkin titled Women Who Should Be Pretty Pissed Off, Mary Blandy, the O.J. Simpson of the 18th Century, which, in my opinion, is itself curious because O.J. was as guilty of murder as anyone could be, but I digress. In the article, 
Watkin doubts Mary's guilt and argues that it might have been sexism and not facts that convicted her. She points to the fact that the jurors were obsessed over Mary's behavior during the trial. Watkin writes, quote, She was female, and therefore people were so concerned about whether she cried in the courtroom, they didn't have time to examine evidence or consider anyone else as the possible killer. Facts have always been pesky nuisances compared to the ease and tranquility of gender stereotyping. End quote. Yet Walken was misguided on several accounts, the first being that she claimed Cranston was never accused of murder or questioned of the crime. He was accused. He was not questioned, but only because he ran away before anyone could get their hands on him. She also questions what proof anyone even had of Mary's guilt, which I saw quite a bit of. And this brings me to the reasons why I personally believe Mary was guilty of poisoning her father. I agree with Watkin in that sexism definitely played a role in the trial and helped to convict her, perhaps more speedily and vehemently than it otherwise would, but the conviction was based on plenty of evidence, much of which came from Mary's own account of events. To begin with, the questions the prosecution posed are also questions that I myself had. If she was innocent, why would she destroy the powder and letters by throwing them into the fire? Why would she hide this evidence from the doctor when it might have been used to save her dad's life? Both of these questions can be answered with the explanation that perhaps Mary was innocent, but was just so frightened that she did not respond to events logically. Okay, sure, but if she were as devoted of a daughter as she claimed to be, wouldn't she care more for her father's life than potentially being arrested? I know that I would. And one of the biggest questions I have that really bothered me throughout is why, why would she keep administering the powder after she saw her father and several others who ingested it fall very, very ill numerous times? And remember, this is an educated, literate woman whom everyone agreed was particularly intelligent. Furthermore, in Mary's account, she claims to have resisted the love powder when Cranston first introduced it to her. She basically asked him if he really was so dumb as to think that such powders actually were, and expressed her fear that the powder would harm her father, and repeatedly told Cranston not to give it to him. When Cranston finally added the powder to Mr. Blandy's tea anyway, she claims she was about to throw the tea out when her father walked in the room and drank it, and was fine. Even after that, when Mary says Cranston wrote to her from Scotland with the powder enclosed, she expressed her surprise that a smart man like him could believe in such superstitions and that she would absolutely not give it to her father in case it hurt him. So, apparently, all Mary needed to hear from Cranston was that he would never hurt her dad in order for her to say, oh, okay, I'll give it to him then. And then, as suspicious as she was about the powder, when she did give it to him and saw that it hurt him, she wouldn't stop. Why? And then Mary even contradicts herself about the entire basis for her defense. Despite repeatedly saying she thought the poison was a love powder, she basically goes on to say, in her written and revised account, by the way, 
that she was not so stupid as to really believe that the so-called love powder would really work, and that what she did, she did out of obedience to Cranston. Which, of course, contradicts all of her claims that she gave her dad the powder to soften his heart towards Cranston. Or was it toward her? She flip-flopped between those two, also. In my opinion, Mary's account of the tragedy reveals a lot about her frame of mind. Just like with the defense she presented at the trial, Mary's account is essentially a long list of wrongs done to her. And I get that being a woman in the 1700s was awful. I agree, it must have been. But how much of that really matters once you realize, if we are to follow Mary's argument, that you have accidentally murdered your own father? Her story of her father's death is really just an account of all the ways in which she suffered, and how she was locked away and she was deprived of her things and her maid to wait upon her, how she loved her father better than any child has, and never once did Mary take the time to discuss what type of father or man her dad had been, or really even talk about him at all, save for the ways in which he negatively affected her. Mary may have felt remorse at being caught, or for her plans not succeeding as she wished, but she expressed little to no remorse for the suffering her father felt from her actions. You have probably been wondering what happened to the man behind this whole charade. As soon as Cranston heard of Mary's arrest, he fled to France. And by the time the messengers were sent to arrest him at home in Scotland, he had already left. Rumor had it that the king himself offered an award for Cranston's capture, but he eventually made his way to Flanders, Belgium. Fortunately, his freedom was short-lived, literally. The very same year that Mary was arrested and sentenced for the murder Cranston helped commit, he died at the age of 39, following what is only described as a brief illness of, quote, great agonies. End quote. Logic says that Cranston dying within a year of Mary's death is mere coincidence. I prefer to think of it as a visit from the Furies. While Mary paid for her crime, Cranston believed he could outrun his misdeeds. He believed he could leave behind all of his lies, all of the suffering he wrought, and the women he pledged his heart to before leaving her to hang alone on the gallows. But the Furies are goddesses of fate. And fate you can't run from. That's it for today, but I will see you back here next week for another episode of Old Blood. Please see the show notes for information on our sources, 
And if you like this episode, please give us a good rating. You can also find us on Instagram if you search for Old Blood Podcast. And a big thank you to Shane Ivers at SilvermanSound.com for the wonderful music we used on today's podcast.